So over the past few weeks, we've been studying the first part of the book of Genesis, starting at chapter 3. I say we, I've been away for a couple of weeks, but we as a church uh, have been doing that. Now, chapters 1 and 2, we looked at a while ago, and they are wonderfully positive. They tell the awe-inspiring story of creation. There is nothing negative, untoward, or sinister in the opening two chapters of the Bible. But in chapter 3, the tone changes and things go downhill fast. Uh, Week 1, we saw how the first human beings succumbed to the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, The serpent deceived them, lied to them, uh, and told them that if they ate fruit from this tree, they would be like God. Uh, The sad irony is they already were like God because they were made in God's image. Uh, The tree and its fruit represent a choice. Will human beings uh, trust God or will they seize autonomy and attempt to define good and evil for themselves? Well, we know that they did the latter and things immediately spiraled uh, out of control. Uh, Week two, we saw that within a generation, violence and bloodshed had become a feature of human life. Cain murdered his brother Abel, and so this spiral of moral decline continues. Uh, Last week, we saw that God was so grieved and saddened at the state of humanity that he resolved to wipe the human race from the face of the earth. Now, when we read the flood story, I think it's natural to assume that God was angry. But God is never said to be angry In the book of Genesis, we're actually told that God was full of regret and deeply troubled in his heart. And so a few chapters after that wonderful story of creation, we hear God saying these tragic words. He says, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. And that could have been the end of the story a total admission of total failure. Uh, But it wasn't the end because God is loving and gracious and God will not give up on creation. This morning, we're going to focus on God's grace. We're going to plot the outworking of that grace, particularly as it relates to Noah and his family and the whole of creation. Grace is defined as the freely given, unmerited favor and love of God. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's blessings. But he pours them out upon us all the same. That is grace. Uh, People often ask, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Well, it's not like you have all the good uh, stuff and the good people over here. And then you have all the evil stuff and the evil people over here. And all you have to do is get rid of the evil and everything will be perfect. It's not that simple. It's all mixed together. Evil is pandemic. It's present even within every human heart. If you want to see a quick fix to evil, the flood is it. Just wipe everything out. So why doesn't God do that? Well, because God is loving and gracious And God will not give up on creation. He will not give up on us. But God is doing something about the evil in the world. And we see that through the outworking 
of his grace. Grace is active, and this morning we're going to see how. So firstly, grace finds. The first mention of Noah is uh, in Genesis 6, verse 8, and it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, Noah found grace. That is the very first thing that the Bible says about Noah. Notice it doesn't say Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and so he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's not that Noah did anything to deserve uh, God's favor. It's subsequently that we're told that Noah was a righteous man. He was righteous because he'd found God's favor, not the other way around. So really, it wasn't that Noah found grace. Grace found Noah. Uh, and, and God comes in search of us because he is gracious and he loves us. Uh, God seeks us out. If you know and love Jesus, it is because God's grace has found you. So that's the first thing, grace finds. The second thing is that grace remembers. Genesis 8 verse 1 says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now when we say that God remembered, we don't mean that God remembered in the same way that we might remember that we've left a chicken in the oven uh, slightly longer than it ought to have been there. God is not remembering something that he's forgotten about. A better word uh, might be mindful. Uh, God uh, was mindful of Noah. And so he acted to bring Noah and his family out of the ark onto dry land. Psalm 115 verse 12 says, The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. If I uh, go out somewhere and I come back with something for Tissa, she loves that. It can be something very small, uh, but she loves it because it shows that I've thought of her. It shows that I've been mindful of her. Isn't it wonderful that God is always mindful of us. No matter what is going on in our lives, God is always mindful of us. God's favor has found us, and God never ceases to remember us. The next thing is that grace decides. Genesis 8.21 says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Grace decides. But the translation that we have has been tweaked to make it make more sense to our very uh, rational Western way of thinking. I won't curse the ground again, even though these humans are an evil bunch. We can understand that. We can process that. Despite the fact that they're evil... I will never bring this kind of calamity on them again. We're okay with that. But the word even though should really be translated for or because. And that puts a very different spin on it. Uh, Listen again, and I paraphrase. Never again will I destroy all human life because every inclination of the human heart is evil. Well, that's illogical, isn't it? That's like a judge saying, I will not send this man to prison because he is clearly guilty. That takes a little bit more getting our heads around, doesn't it? But what it shows is that God's grace operates not in spite of human sin, but because of it. God has made a decision. 
He's seen what we're like, and he's made a decision to stick with us. He's made a decision to find a way to bless us, even though we don't deserve it. That's grace. Next, grace promises. Verse 22 says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God promises to sustain creation and maintain the basic order of things. Uh, And of course, this is a promise for the whole of creation, not just for human beings. Uh, The language that's used throughout this passage draws our attention to the fact that the destiny of the whole of creation is bound up together. So our gracious God has promised something that we take for granted, that the natural order of things will just continue uh, as always. We take that for granted, but we have no right to... saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Do you notice how similar that is to God's blessing in Genesis 1? In Genesis 1 it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. It's like God is pressing the reset button. Creation went badly wrong. God washed it clean with the flood. The flood, if you like, was an act of uncreation, an undoing of creation. And here we see that God is getting things going again. God is beginning the process of recreation. But things are not as they were before. I wonder if you've ever broken a bone and it's healed, but it's not healed quite right. Uh, I was once uh, in the gym and I had my hand resting on a weights rack and a little um, thin metal strip on this uh, rack and a 90-pound dumbbell came tumbling off the top rack and landed on my finger and and chopped through the end of my finger. Sorry if you're, you're a bit squeamish, but uh, it cut right through the bone and the end of my finger was just being held on by the fingernail. Now, amazingly... The doctors managed to sew it all back together, and it works. But it's not quite the same. It's misshapen, and it bears uh, a scar. And if I think about it as I am now, uh, I realize that it always tingles. And we see something similar happening with this reboot of creation. Uh, God gets everything going again, and he gives more or less the same blessing. But there are subtle differences. In Genesis 1, God blesses the man and the woman. He blesses male and female. After the flood in Genesis 9, God blesses Noah and his sons. It's as if patriarchy has become this normal part of life. But it wasn't supposed to be like that in the beginning. But there's another difference, even less subtle than the first. In Genesis 1, God commands humans to rule over all living creatures. And, of course, human beings are meant to rule in the same way that God uh, would rule, with love and justice and grace. And then God says that he's given them every green plant for food. So that's Genesis 1. But in Genesis 9, God says something very different. 
He says, the fear and dread of you will fall on all creatures. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So God has reset creation, but it's not the same. It bears the scars. It walks with a limp. It's uh, as if God has realized how depraved human beings are, and he's made some kind of concession. God has said, okay, this is not the way that I wanted things to be, but I'll work with it. I'll find a way of blessing them anyway. That is grace. God blesses. Next, uh, we're going to look at this very briefly, but God decrees in verse 4 to 6. We see that God gives a decree that relates to the sanctity of life. No animal is to be eaten with its lifeblood still in it. And no human being is to to murder or kill another human being. But this decree can only be given by a God of grace. Because we saw in Genesis 1, it seems that human beings weren't originally meant to eat meat. And they certainly weren't meant to murder one another. So God is gracious. Instead of wiping everybody out, God sets these boundaries. Grace decrees. Uh, Next, we see that grace pledges. Reading from 9 verse 8, God says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will I, will, will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. A pledge or a covenant is a, a, a solemn commitment, a promise. Uh, sometimes it's a two-way commitment. Take marriage, for example. Uh, the commitment goes both ways. Marriage only works if both parties are faithful and true. But God's uh, covenant goes one way. This is God's solemn promise again, to the whole of creation. Uh, God's covenants uh, are not dependent or contingent on us. And that's a great relief. Because if God's plans uh, relied, depended, or hinged on us, we'd mess them up. We'd wreck them. For God's plans to work, they have to be a pure act of grace. They're not at all dependent on us. They rely solely on God. But, you know, I think in our culture especially, we struggle to recognize the binding nature of a covenant. Um, I use marriage as an example. Well, the Daily Mail uh, did a survey, and they discovered that 60% of Australians would be willing to sign a prenuptial agreement, and a further 20% would be willing to, uh, to consider it. So that means that t- uh, 80% of Australians are willing to consider the prospect of divorce before they've even tied the knot. But God's covenants are binding. As John Goldingay put it, a covenant is a commitment that has all God's character behind it. God cannot break his covenant without ceasing to be God. So grace pledges. Grace pledges uh, something that is completely uh, undeserved. And finally, grace affirms. God affirms his commitment by placing a sign in the sky. Verse 13 says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. We're given a reminder of God's commitment to the whole of creation. God won't destroy creation. He'll renew it. 
Reverend Dr. George Matheson was a a Scottish minister and hymn writer. He was uh, born in 1842. He died in 1906. And at the age of 20, he went blind. And his fiancée left him because she couldn't bear the thought of living with someone who was blind. Uh, His sister looked after him, but then she got married. And her circumstances changed, and she was no longer able to care for him, or she didn't care for him. And George was left bereft. He was grief-stricken. And he wrote a hymn, and the title of the hymn is The Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Let me read you one of the lines from that hymn. It goes, I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain that morn shall tearless be. And today we need to look for the rainbow in the rain and see the promise that it makes for the whole of creation. God is gracious. God will not deal with us as we deserve. God will not give up on his creation. God will not give up on us. So what is God doing about the evil in the world? Well, even at this early stage of the Bible's narrative, we can see that God is active in and through and by the gracious decisions that he makes the gracious actions that he does. God finds. God's favor finds us. God remembers. He decides. He promises. He blesses, decrees, pledges, and affirms. God is active. God's grace is active in our world. And all of that activity that we see from God in today's passage is only the beginning of a long process of renewing and restoring the whole of creation. We're actually at this stage in the narrative, given no clue what God intends to do. Uh, only when God makes a covenant uh, with, uh, with Abraham in chapter 12 do we get any sort of idea. And even then, it's a very hazy uh, picture. But maybe there is one clue, a clue that only makes sense if we view this text through the lens of Jesus. As you know, the bow, I mean, we think a rainbow, you know, the pretty thing in the sky, but a bow, particularly in the ancient world, is, is a weapon of war. And notice uh, that God has set it aside and the direction that it's pointing. The bow is not pointing downwards towards humanity. It's pointing upwards towards God, as it were. Utterly destroying humanity is not an option for God. The ultimate solution to the problem of evil does not lie in violence being done to human beings by God. The solution to the problem of evil lies in violence being done to God by human beings. The solution lies in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Grace doesn't stop with the actions that we've highlighted uh, from today's passage. We can add to the list. Grace gives up everything. Grace dies. Grace rises to new life. Grace sends the Holy Spirit. Grace wins. God wins. You know, people often ask the question, if there's a God, why doesn't he put a stop to evil? But what they usually mean is why doesn't he put a stop to evil right now, this instant, without delay? Well, evil is so entrenched in our world 
and in our hearts that destroying evil would mean destroying everything. And God has promised not to do that. In his great love for us, God has chosen the complicated and messy path of grace, a path that would lead God himself to die on a cross for the sins of the whole world. We see God making that choice here in Genesis, which is why it's such an amazing uh, passage. Uh, and we see uh, some, something similar in Luke's gospel. Remember when uh, James and John uh, asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the unbelieving Samaritans? And Jesus rebuked them. And instead, he headed resolutely for Jerusalem, where crucifixion awaited him. That is grace. Grace comes to us freely, but it requires a response. So let us give our hearts and lives to Jesus. I mean, really give our hearts and lives to Jesus in the knowledge that we will be saved from destruction precisely because Jesus took the long, hard road of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, passage from Genesis. And whichever way we interpret it, the the message is clear uh, that you will not give up on creation, that you will not simply destroy creation because of evil, but you have found a way, uh, a way for us to be made right with you, a way for creation to continue, a way for the whole of creation to be put right and made perfect in the end. And we pray, Father, that we will participate wholeheartedly in that process as individuals, as a church, that we will allow you to bring change and transformation to our hearts and lives, that we will be willing to be used to bring change and transformation to our families and our community and to the world. We pray, Father, that we put our complete hope and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.